Welcome to the Building Wealth Through Commercial Real Estate Podcast, where we will discuss with industry experts on how to create wealth and build passive income from apartment buildings, self-storage, mobile home parks, and much more. Here is your host, Jonathan Way. Welcome to the Building Wealth Through Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Way, and I'm the founder of Grayson Capital Group, my investment firm. If you're interested in passively investing with us, please visit graystonecapgroup.com and join our investor network. Okay, and now on to the show. Hello, Lisa, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Appreciate it. Yes. Lisa is the founder of lisahilton.com, a real estate investment firm that provides opportunities for for entrepreneurs and business owners to invest in tax-efficient real estate investments. Lisa is also the host of Level Up REI podcast, which is every Tuesday and the first Thursday each month for conversation for passive investors. Lisa Hilton is a CPA of 10 years of audit experience from PwC and four and a half years of control on a private equity real estate fund in, in LA. Her current mission is to provide podcast episodes and investment opportunities for entrepreneurs and business owners to level up their business and real estate investing to build long-term wealth and financial freedom. Well, that's a great um, bio, uh, Lisa. Really appreciate you having you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. But today's topic, um, we would like to talk about real estate funds and, uh, you know, what, what are the real estate funds, what types they are, how do they work uh, for, for, for beginners. Um, so if you can just explain, elaborate, you know, what, what is a real estate fund, first of all, how you define it, and then what constitutes the different types and how one invests in one and look for the one that's suitable for their needs, basically. Yes, great questions. So to kick things off, Real estate funds are typically um, created to pool money from investors to then turn around and invest in real estate. Um, so those there are two distinct types of funds. Um, the first one is you can have single asset real estate funds. So an entity is created to purchase one asset, and that's very typical for most real estate syndications. Then you can also have an entity that's created to invest in multiple assets that are pre-identified and determined. Um, And thirdly, you have blind funds. So blind funds are funds where the assets are not identified, but what is identified is the, the strategy that this fund plans to adopt. So the typical fund strategies are value add, so multifamily value add, Um, multifamily opportunistic, or you could have a fund that is just value add and it will go into a variety of different asset classes, everything from hotels to industrial to self-storage to multifamily. Um, And then on the other side, opportunistic, the same can be true, where the strategy is held stable, but the asset class um, can be varied. And in those cases, uh, even in the case where um, the asset class is identified, typically what the fund will say is when it's getting kicked off, it'll tell investors the planned duration is you know five to 10 years. And then the return on this particular fund could be like an IRR of like say 15% or 20% or 25% with preferred returns. And usually the funds will have a preferred return for investors. So I'll stop there for a bit, you know, in case you want to have any questions before I okay. keep going. Okay. So we're, great. So you have different flavors. You look have one, a single asset, mm-hmm. which I assume could be one type of asset in commercial real estate. Then you'd have one as multi, a multi asset, right? It could be various type of assets in that fund. 
and it could be different type of, of opportunities. It could be value add, it could be stabilized, right? Um, and it could be opportunistic. And when you say opportunistic, what does that really mean in, in that sense? Yeah, great question. So opportunistic funds are typically funds that plan to do either development projects or deep value add. So oh. this is like complete overhauls or they're building from scratch, everything from hotels to multifamily to even industrial parks. Oh, okay. Very interesting. So that those are very deep value add where it, it creates, it needs a lot of significant capital. Correct. Um, um, and yeah. I think another good thing to note here is with opportunistic funds, they typically have the highest projected returns because investors are taking the highest risk. And they also have less cash flow during the whole period because when you're developing, there is no cash flow um, until you sell it at the end. And that's when you get the big pop that then ends up going back to investors when it's sold. Value add typically will have cash flow all the way throughout because they're buying um, assets that are operating. Uh, and then when they sell them, you know, there's some cash flow on the back end as well. Yes, exactly, exactly. Because obviously development, you got to buy the land. It takes time to get the permits and get zoning and everything else ready. So that's why it takes a long time to exactly to get a, a payday, exactly. uh, a distribution. Whereas value add, you know, could be relatively quicker because they're pre-existing. It's just a ramp up period where you can, you know, get up enough that you can start distributing cash flow. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the other very, very important distinction here is you have funds that are capital call structure, capital mm -hmm. commitment structure, and then you have funds where essentially they're called equity structure. So the first one is capital commitment. This is where investors will commit like $50 million to the fund. And then the total fund commitment is like maybe a billion dollars. So then the investment manager will draw down on that 50 million over a period of maybe a year to two years, maybe even three years. They will call that money from investors. They're not going to call it all at once. Oh, that's whereas interesting. With the Yeah. Whereas with the traditional real estate syndication model, when you think of a fund in that scenario, you call all the money right at the start um, because now you've an you have an asset that you've identified, be it an RV park or self storage, so you're ready to go um, and you're ready to buy it. The third thing to note is you also have um, the blind funds that are extremely popular currently, um, and sometimes those funds um, will do they don't so the strategy is clearly defined but they don't have the assets selected yet so they are planning on calling money from investors to then continue to acquire assets as they go along because they want to have that dry powder so that way they can jump on an asset the minute they see it they don't have to think about raising capital they already have capital so when that happens, typically something that investors really need to think about is when that happens is the opportunist, the opportunity cost of having their money with that sponsor. Yes. Typically in the traditional private equity environment, the moment we, the moment they call capital is when the preferred return would start. So if the preferred return is 8%, the preferred return starts from the moment we call capital. 
So in the case of these blind funds, I think it's a very important question that passive investors need to ask operators is, hey, you, uh, I'm giving you the 50K. I know the fund is blind. I know you're going to keep looking for deals. What happens between the time that you collect my money and you actually find a deal to buy the asset? Um, and the answer you want to hear is that they're either going to start ticking pref or they're going to start ticking some kind of percentage, be it like 2%, 3% or something um, during the time that they're holding that money. Because you could potentially go and invest that money in the stock market or somewhere into another deal <laughs> mm -hmm. yes. um, that is actually giving you an 8% annual return. So I guess 2% meaning you pay the investor 2% interest or something during the whole time? Okay. Yeah, that's very important. That's why uh, in my structure, I don't do a blind fund. I know the advantages of it, but I don't feel comfortable holding people's money up when, until I find my next solid deal, which is very hard sometimes to get a solid diamond or rough deal, right? That's why when, it, when I have it, then I say, hey, my best is I give, you a, little, I give them a warning a couple of weeks ahead. I say, listen, I'm going to draft my deck and then you get heads up to know that my next deal is coming in the pipeline, get your money ready. And we can show it to you. And if you like to see like the deal, you can invest, you know, you can invest right. quickly into my deal, right? That's the, normally how I do it. So. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, that's just something as people, because I see a lot of blind funds coming on board these days. Yes. I don't know about yeah. you. There's just a ton of them. <laughs> no, I see a lot of people doing it, especially in, in, in my circle. Um, they open these funds and then. They wait for the next deal to come. So that's, that's what they're trying to do. But it's very difficult in multifamily world because it's very competitive to get a really good deal. It's, it's, very, it's extremely overheated in, in multifamily. Yeah. So. so I think the key thing is for operators who are planning on doing that is they need to make sure that they have a lot of strong deal flow. Yes. Um, because yeah. that can help them to save. One of the things, so people are probably thinking, okay, well, how do the institutional investors do it? Huh. Yes. Great question if that's what you're thinking, um, because the way they do it is they'll do line of credits from the bank. Oh. So because they have they're working with large investors such like Peacers, the pension, you know, uh, the state teachers pension fund or the firefighter for California pensions yes. and all this stuff, they can go to the bank and sort of say, hey, these are our investors. They've committed 50 million a piece. Like we'd like to take out a line of credit. Um, and they, the bank will say, okay, these are the ones that we're going to rely on because we feel they're bankable. And they will then allow the fund a line of credit, like 300, 400 million dollars. So wow. the fund can then take that 400 million and go buy assets with it. Wow. And then the beauty is the the return, the interest on the line of credit is typically LIBOR or SOFR, you know, very low in comparison to preferred returns of eight and nine percent. So that mm -hmm. enables the funds to then have that money go out, buy assets. And in the case of those value add funds that are buying op um, operating assets, they could have a situation where they can even start kicking off distributions before they even start calling capital, which is crazy. Um, but yes. it happens. Um, wow. And then they'll call capital, pay off the line um, once the investment period ends. So let's walk through an example so people can understand, my audience can understand. When you say call capital, just walk me a simple example so we understand. Yeah. Great question. So say you have a fund, Jonathan, 
mm-hmm. and you're raising a billion dollar fund and you yeah. approach me and I say, you say to me, this is my fund. It's value add opportunistic. It's a value add fund and we're going to invest in only multifamily. And you say, do you want to invest? And I feel comfortable. I decide to commit. So say I commit from your 1 billion, I commit a hundred million to your fund. Okay. So I've signed the papers that a hundred, I'm going to give you a hundred million. So what you'll do, um, if in the case of the line of credit, say I am very bankable, you can then go to the bank and say, okay, Lisa Hilton is going to give me a hundred million. The bank believes in my company and feels that I'm credit worthy, et cetera, et cetera based on, you know, these are reputable banks. So they'll do their due diligence on the different investors and determine which ones are bankable. And then say they think I'm bankable, they'll then give you a hundred million dollar loan, a line of credit. So you don't end up having to call for me. You can then take that line of credit and use it to buy assets. So for the next year and a half to two years, because usually the investment period is about two years long, they will then use that money to buy assets. Um, and then once they are ready, once it gets close towards the end of the investment period is when during that time, they'll start looking at the line and determine when they want to call to, you know, free up in order for them to have more capital to buy more deals. So, yeah. And, and so, so a capital call, tell your investor, I need money from you, basically capital call, right? Yeah. So they might say maybe like a year in, they might, I've committed a hundred million. So maybe a year in they're like, okay, we'd like to call from you. We'll send out a capital call and saying, Hey, in two weeks, can you please fund 50 million out of your hundred million? And in two weeks, I'll then find the money to fund 50 million. So that's a very interesting thing because normally I get my front of first, but this situation you could commit, but not pay until a year later. Okay, that's a very different scenario of what we do now. We actually raise up front, so we have it. Because this is like in the institutional space, so you're dealing with institutional investors, so I think it's a little bit... um, Yeah, so different, because now... Because then institutional investors, you say, I need a call, 15 million, they can can bring in that check probably in like, you know, a week or so. And they always ask us every quarter, Mm -hmm. like when I was doing that kind of work, they would always ask every quarter, what is the anticipated cap calls coming out? So they always want to know, so that way they can prepare on their side, Mm -hmm. you know, what they need to sell or have done, so that way they have the money to fund. Okay, interesting. Okay, that's a very interesting perspective. Thank you. I didn't know about the institutional side. I was very curious about that because I only know the you know the individual side, you know, yeah. and I didn't know about the the, the the high level, you know, the players in the institutional side. So they took a line of credit, which is very interesting because normally you think from an individual, you have a home, right, thirty year mortgage, right. you have paid off, it's free and clear, and you could say, hey, go to your bank and say, I want a line of credit of like you know one million dollars. My home, my home is one million dollars. Then you can take that one million dollars and go and go buy whatever you like, right? So sure. that's a similar concept, right? In that sense. It's no, exactly right? the same concept. Mm-hmm. Exactly okay. the same concept. Okay, great, great. Okay, great. So um, so where do you see your investors coming to you and say, I want either single or multi? How how does that work? How's that how's that come work, you know? Yeah, so for me, I focus primarily right now on single asset funds. So that are already identified. I do not do blind at the moment. Um mm-hmm. Will that change in the future? Of course. Um, 
would I do multiple, you know, as long as the, all the investments are identified, I would also feel comfortable doing those ones as well. Um, I just haven't gotten to the level of doing blind funds, um, but I do respect the, as I said before, one of the key things is, um, is deal flow. So as you get, as you play more in the space, um, you will automatically start getting more and more deal flow. And that helps you to then be in a position where you could create a fund like that. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And okay, great. And um, I know you, you raised capital and did multifamily deals. That's great. Have you done other asset class with multifamily or a hotel yeah, or something? Great question. So as a active investor, multifamily is my preferred investment of choice. Um, I like recession resistant real estate in general. Um, class B typically around the 100 units, give or take. Um, and then from a passive investor's point of view, I have invested in industrial outside yeah. of multifamily. So I've done five deals to date that I've invested in, one of which is industrial and the other four are all multifamily and two have gone full cycle in the past. Great, great, yeah. Yeah, like a lot of my deals are going full cycle. So I'm really, uh, it's a great uh, feeling to go full cycle. It is. <laughs> yeah. And we can definitely talk, Lisa, because uh, I have like industrials and storage and we can, you know, see how we can help each other. Yeah, for sure. Um, and also do multifamily, also like, you know, class B and then like, you know, over 100 units, those are kind of things like that. So nice. great. So what, 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 um, so in your, in your experience, how would you feel so far your multifamily passive investing thing hasn't been going? Yeah, that's also a good question. I would say by and large, it's been going pretty good. Okay. Um, I did have one asset in Atlanta that um, was impacted by COVID. So okay. as a result, it did not pay distributions for the entire 2020. Um, and then when 2021 came around, the operator decided to sell the asset. During that time, they provided communication. So I would see the quarterly reports and I could see that the, the NOI on this asset was going down. So yeah. it was definitely, you know, in troubled waters. The key thing that went on there is they bought the asset in 2019 in the summer. And the plan was to go in and execute the business plan, which was to do a lot of renovations. Yes. But because of COVID, COVID interrupted a lot of the renovations. They were unable to achieve rent, the rent growths that they wanted. And the tenants in the development, it's in the complex itself, many of which were unable to pay their rent. So there was a lot of bad debt. Uh, so a combination of all of that, you know, definitely hurt um, the investment. However, I am very grateful for for working with these operators because they saw that this was happening and decided to sell the property um, as opposed to trying to hold on to it and try to turn things, turn the ship around. Um, we were in a really good market, which is Atlanta, and they were able to sell the property for approximately 30% greater than purchase price. So mm -hmm. it at least was able to give investors back their money and also come with gains. So. Yeah, that's excellent. No, that's, that's excellent. I think that's a wise move because they know that the sink, the ship was sinking yeah. and they had to exit. And, and instead of just, you know, you know, battling these, which is really out of their control, COVID-19, right. um, you cannot evict the tenants during this period. 
And if they're not paying tenants, right. you have high, what we call bad debt collection. Um, and a lot of you got, you know, got sort of hurt in that sense. And then the CARES Act, from for us experience, didn't kick in until really now, like one or two months. So it, it was a long period of time to get the money. Because in the first round, it all ran out of money. Then when you try to get the money, it's like, oh, oh it has no more funds. So then you wait till the second round opens and apply quickly for it. And then you get the, it takes another month process to get the refunds. Yeah, 100%. So, but you know, what I think is also very interesting too is I have had experience investing in pretty much all the classes except for D. I would never invest mm -hmm. in D personally. Yeah. Um, for people who want to, that's great. Uh, but I have invested in like A, A minus. Mm -hmm. um, B plus B and C. Um, yeah. and there was another property that was not too far away from this one, but it's a different class and just different neighborhood. Um, yeah. and that property did extremely well, um, and was able to pay all through COVID. Um, so which illustrates that, you know, it really matters where you choose to buy, um, and what class you, uh, of tenants you're dealing with, because, mm -hmm. That one did have bad debt too, but um, the tenants were able to repay their debts because they were just in a different economical situation. Yeah. So, yes. Yes. Yeah. So. And that one is also selling as well, and it's actually the IRR is like twenty five percent in twenty yes. months. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. No, that's good. That's excellent. That's wonderful. Wonderful. Um, great. So what? Um, I guess. I guess in, in your funds, um, what would you tell your, I guess, investor if they want to invest in multifamily? What, uh, what would you tell them in that situation? Yeah. What's your advice? You know, you know, my advice for investor, for people who are interested in passively investing in multifamily, I think the first thing is the operator. You really got to make sure that the person you um, vet, the person who's going to be managing the asset. Um, so you need to find out who's going to be doing the management of the asset. And they're mm -hmm. the most important piece of the puzzle um, because the asset manager is who is helping you, who's helping the project achieve um, the business plan um, and execute and achieve the returns at the end of the day. So you want to make sure that they have the track record and experience. They have people on their team that knows the asset class and can execute on the business plan that they're not doing this for the first time. Um, I think that's paramount. And then secondly um, is location. Um, you, can, you can't change location. You can do all you can on the asset, but if you are in a bad area um, and all, you're just in a bad market where there is population decreasing and their job growth is not there to substantiate um, rent increases, then they're just going to have a really hard time executing uh, a business plan that relies on rent increases. And that's key um, because yes. you can have business plans that are not relying on rent increases. They could be relying on um, better management of expenses. And that's, that too can be very profitable if you're dealing with, um, you know, very large expenses, you know, for such as like 50% or more of the rental income can indicate that that has a management issue. Um, so then a syndicator going into correcting that 
doesn't necessarily need to deal with increasing rents. So, so those are the things I would say I would stick there. Those are the key things um, mm -hmm. that I would sort of look at for sure. Yes. Yes. No, I agree. The operator and also the, and what's the plan and how they're going to, you know, turn it around, turn around the value add the, um, the right. apartment building. And, um, and, and I, I always stay away from crime areas yeah. like, you know, and, and so demographics are important. Um, so you, you stay away from, you know, high crime. Yep. You have to make sure the market is really growing the, you know, household income and the job market substantiates who the top employers, what, are, what, what do your tenants work at do a sort of a, a, a deep analysis on, on, on the demographics and where they work at. And we have, um, and we also have a firm that does all those research. And then we also compile the data into the, the sort of new Baba study, you know, new Baba, Yep. He has a study where we, we take his, his study, we analyze all demographics. And we also hire a firm externally to vet the, all the, do like all these due diligence for us as well, making sure that that's a proper, you know, a place and it, right. it's, it, it can execute our vision basically. Yeah. So great, great. Um, great. Excellent. Um, okay. So um, anything else you want to share, Lisa? No, I think that's pretty much it. You know, um, I think the last thing I would share on funds is, you know, I think it's as people think about going into blind funds, um, I would also be eyes wide open in terms of duration. Uh, because unlike, you know, a single asset, when it's sold, it, that money is coming back. Like sometimes funds can go on for much longer than planned, um, not deliberately, but because of market situations and you have multiple assets that you're dealing with. So it sometimes take a long time to to sell them um, and you're waiting for the most ideal time to do so. So I think it's just key and important to, to think about that. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad vehicles to invest in. You just want to understand, you know, all the risk involved as you're getting ready to make that investment. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much, Lisa. Come on the show. Thanks for listening. For more information, you can find us online at www.graystonecapgroup.com. Check back weekly for new episodes. See you again next time.